0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to day two of the 2021 CMP Summit. I'm Charles Stevens, the founder and executive director of the Counter Narrative Project. I am really grateful that you have decided to join us this afternoon. We have a really, really incredible uh, schedule events in store for you, so please uh, definitely take it all in. We hope that you are willing to share your wisdom and your insights with us. Feel free to ask questions. We have a Q&A uh, function that we ask you to direct your questions to. Um, but yeah, I'm just really excited. We've worked We've worked so hard trying to plan this event, and I can't just express enough just how happy i am particularly with yesterday yesterday was amazing um but so today you know we certainly have you know a lot of work uh to get to so with that i have the honor of introducing our first our first uh participant speaker brandon wilson brandon wilson is considered to be one of the most influential communications professionals in the world having worked in three countries the New Times scholar is bilingual, speaks fluent Portuguese, and was recently featured in an intro to public relations college textbook. Brandon is the first Black male to become accredited in public relations in Alabama, and one of the first Black persons in the nation to ever serve as president of a public relations society of America chapter. Brandon is the fir- is the president and CEO of Wilburon Inc. Wilburon Inc a communications agency whose work is literally helping to improve the world. In collaboration with leaders at Wilbron, Brandon's expertise has impacted leaders and the pursuits of some of the most influential influential companies in the world. Most recently, Wilbron partnered with Apple to introduce the world to a new college campus dedicated to spurring innovation at historically Black colleges and universities across America. Brandon's work is also helping to shine a light on global wealth disparities and global health disparities in America, Canada, and Ghana. Brandon is an advisor to emerging and influential leaders in corporate America. In this role, he specializes in helping leaders avoid hazards along their leadership journey. His inaugural book, Sabotage Leadership That Overcomes Betrayal, Theft and Deceit captures the spirit of this work and prepares leaders to undertake transformational pursuits while also avoiding the traps set by those who seek to betray, steal, and deceive them along the way. I need to read that book. Brandon's book will be available for pre-orders in April, 2021. Brandon is married to Shani Wilson. They have one daughter, Kenny Wilson, two years old. Hey, Brandon. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Okay. (laughs) Before we get started with the questions, I should share a bit about how this conversation came about. Um, I had the our CMP, uh, we, you know, we were working with World Run, and this is like right before the pandemic. And I think the first meeting we had, I don't know how it came about, but we started talking about, we found out we had an interest in history, right? And we started talking about Bayard Rustin. Remember that?
1: You had a shirt on that said, from Baldwin to Bayard. I think that's what it's what uh, it
0: said. And you referenced yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we started talking. And then I learned that you also had an interest in civil rights movement history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then somewhere along the, the way you uh <laughs> um, I discovered you remember Omega Sci and that's when we started talking about Baird Rustin. And and I, I I took note of that. So sometimes you'll find with me, like we might have a conversation a year prior, and then you'll get an invitation. You know, the wheels are already turning in my mind. And then you'll get an invitation a year later about something that you said two years ago, because I'm gonna remember it. But I remember being really um just happy that you'd be willing to have this conversation. I didn't, th- I wasn't sure if you would accept. So I'm just happy that you're you're here with us to to chat. So why don't we just jump why don't we just jump right in? Um how did you how did you learn about Beard Rustin?
1: Yeah, that's it, <clears throat> that's a great question. And um, and it's great because it allows me to to also unpack my connection to civil rights history as well. And uh, my my I, my exposure to, to, to Bayer to Rustin was was through third party. I actually had a, a, a I pledged Omega at Auburn University, uh, and this is an important part of the story. <clears throat> and because I worked in student affairs at the time, so I was a a student worker, uh, and I also worked. Um, part of my job allowed me to work for the office of the president as well while I was there. So I had a very unique student position uh, at, uh, at Auburn University. And in around 2000, uh, I get a phone call at night from uh, one of my uh, line brothers. He said, man, you won't believe what's happening. And he said, I got some pictures I need to show you. So he rushed over to my apartment on campus and it shows me these pictures, <clears throat> and this instance will really change my, my, the trajectory of my career, how I would treat my career. They showed me these photos of, of Greek, uh, white Greek organizations or, or Panhellenic organizations at a party and they had their faces painted black. And they were posing for photos with nooses around their necks. And, uh, and all kinds of stuff. Some, some would have Ku Klux Klan regalia on in these photos. And, it, and at the time, this is before like social media was a thing, they had these photos called zaps where they would hire a company and they would do these zaps on, on the, at the party and then they would post them on a, on a website and then people would go and download them. Well, anyhow, I said, listen, we gotta do something about this. You know, I ended up escalating it to student affairs and we ended up working very closely, the Omegas did, myself and with the president to come up with some, some solutions for advancing the college campus. And in that time, uh, I ran into uh, uh, one of the professors who said, Brandon, listen, you're getting a lot of exposure. Uh, they're putting you on BET with Ed Gordon and you're having to speak on the Today Show. I actually got a call from, uh, what's the model name?
0: Tara um, Banks.
1: No, she had the show, America's Next Top Model.
0: Tara Banks.
1: Tara Banks. That's right, Tara Banks. Yeah, Tyra Banks. I, know, I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> Tara Banks called, and one of when she had our talk show, and, and she said, "Brandon, you know, you need to be very careful about, um, about where you show up and what you say for your own protection around here." And it was an African American woman who really took dear, and she said, "There's a number you should call," uh, and she gave me a number of a lawyer uh, from the Southern and worked at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And they came and they sent some people and they would shadow me. They would go to class with me. They would, you know, just make sure that I wasn't being bullied. And there were some attempts to at do some, some stuff to me from different people, but they were always there. And after I graduated, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center offered me a job. And that's where I encountered uh, Byron Rushton. Uh, at the Southern Poverty Law Center, my job was to provide solutions to college presidents across the country who were faced with bigotry bias on college campuses. And if you remember that time, there was a a, a spike. So I was always on a plane. I was always traveling somewhere, dealing with anti-Semitism, with homophobia that was running rampant, uh, with racism that was happening all over college college campuses, and coming up with these solutions uh, to do that and have my own encounters. But when I would come back, I would go to the library at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I would spend all my time there, and there was a book uh, that was in the library uh, called *Parting the Waters*. Don't know if anybody's ever heard it, but it's literally uh, the the biggest book I've ever read. It's a thousand pages, literally, and it's written by Taylor Branch, and it, it provides probably the richest, most in-depth history of the of the modern civil rights movement that I've ever encountered in my life. I mean, I would sit, I would like lay underneath the table in the conference room where the library was at nine o'clock at night and just absorb every, every word of this book. And, and I would do so in large part because at the time I was also homeless. I didn't have a house. So I would stay at the office and just learn vivaciously, like just read and read and read. And this name just kept popping up throughout the book. Bayard Rustin, he met Dr. King and he said, A, B, C, and D. Uh, he he met Coretta and and, and you know uh, start talking about this Quaker history and oh man he was in Birmingham and um, they were going to send some people out to get him and they had to smuggle him away in the trunk of a car like I was like who is who is this who is this guy and come to find out he's an Omega and I was really shocked by that because when we are initiates um, we call us lamps when we are initiated who part of a, the Lampados Club so when we were part of the Lampados Club and being initiated we learned about all these luminaries. And, and Bear Rustin's name was was not amongst the list of the Charles Drews or the Percy Julians. And, you know, you know and, and it was a surprise to me. So I started to delve deeper and deeper and deeper and, and just became fascinated by this incredible figure who has done some just incredible, incredible um, work to change the world and, and our society as we know it today.
0: Thank you. What do we know about Bayard Rustin's relationship to the Omega Sapphire fraternity?
1: Well, before I dive into uh, the world of Omega, I also wanna give a shout out to uh, civil rights icon, uh, Morris Dees, Uh, because I would take what I learned. And so Morris Dees and I would travel together. And I remember this one time we went to Pennsylvania. I was doing, he was giving a speech there and I was doing consultancy work. Uh, and um, I remember we were in the hotel, uh, I think it's called the Statler Hotel, I think is what it was called too. And um, and he was in his room and he called me to come by his room, it was at nighttime and we was we were watching a documentary. And I remember him saying to me, that's not how any of this happened. That, that's not that's not what happened in that march. And so some of the things I wanna share today is really we're gonna provide some glimpse behind the movement and behind some facts. And I want to provide that caveat and I also want to give a shout out to the Upsilon chapter of Omega Sci-Fi over at Wilberforce. Um, you know, a lot of this information in, in, that I share today would not have been possible um, without them. And so that's Brother Lamar Cole, Tim from the 84 line, uh, Raya Harrison, who's the advisor to their MPHC, uh, and Tashia Bradley, who's their librarian. So I got on a lot of people's nerves to prepare for this meeting because <laughs> <laughs> there is not a lot about Bayard Rustin. So what, I, what I'll share is what I know, and then I wanna provide some greater context around that. What well, we know, and these are the, the, the data points. We know that um, the archives at, at Wilbur Forest, um go, go back all the way to the early 30s when, when, when Bayard Rustin was a student there. And he's actually on the roster, the student roster in the College of Liberal Arts there, um, from 1932 to 1933. Um, from 33 to 34, there are no records of him. And so, uh, I think Bayer Rustin took literally this idea of being an invisible operator, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> even when he was when he was in college. And there's a, and there's a reason for for that 33 34 absence and and what a lot of people will point to is, is like what, what what was happening during that time then and and so what we know is is that he did not graduate from Wilberforce I mean I think that is a a fact that a lot of people know he he, he actually ended up going transferring or leaving Wilberforce and going to Cheney um, uh, University. Uh, Wilberforce um, is a is an um, uh, AME-backed HBCU. Um, and, you know, his, he was raised by his grandmother and she went to, even though she believed in the Quaker principle, she was a member of the AME church. So it is it is likely he got a scholarship from the AME um, uh, 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 parishion to, to, go, to uh, go to the school. But what people point to is that he left because there was a protest. And I think it was even mentioned in the video. Uh, it was a strike. <clears throat> and one of the things that I thought was very compelling is that the strike he led was actually a bad food strike. Uh, so he 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 he. I found it really fascinating that um, that as a student he led a bad food strike uh, in the dormitories. Uh, he didn't believe that the students should be eating what they were eating, <laughs> and he made his voice heard. Uh, that that was that was in uh, in 1933. What's really interesting about that is that he pledged Omega in 1933. So he 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 arrived in 1932. He pledged Omega in 1933, um, and there were 15 other brothers that uh, there were. It was a line of 15, which was quite sizable for the Cubes, and and what that tells me is that during that time in 1933, and if you if you back up and not look at so in, in Solely as a epsilon brother, but look at the fraternity overall. The fraternity was going through a great growth phase, and some now, but more so then, you know, every initiate uh, was thoroughly vetted. <clears throat> they were um, invited to uh, to consider Omega. Um, it was, and there was this this long consideration about who would be on a line, like who would be here uh, on a line. So, so Bayard Rushton uh, stood out. I think his charisma was probably really on full display as a college student. You know, he's away from his, from his grandparents. He's out in the world. Um, and, but he also was someone who was prepared to be an, be an activist and prepared to be a leader. And I would imagine that is what one of the things that drew the fraternity to Bayard Rushton and what, what the reason I say that is because look, Bayard Rustin happened to Omega. Omega didn't happen to Bayard Rustin. He um, he's one of those uh, rare uh, and compelling leaders who uh, whoever is is blessed enough to earn his affiliation with him receive more from him than they could ever hope to give to him. And in that year um, of 1933, he was actually. Um, disappeared from 1934 all the way to 1936. And so what records show is that he was actually expelled from, from, from Wilberforce in 1936. And what, um, and what we believe happened is is that he alone, it wasn't a fraternity strike. It was a, led by Bayard uh, Rustin. Uh, he alone sort of led this and, and probably a few other folks that it led to a suspension. Uh, he was suspended from Wilberforce. And I think the official ruling occurred to the library, librarian facts and notes, the suspicion, the suspension actually, the ruling came down as an expulsion in 1936. And he was probably already you know, at Cheney and doing his thing and thinking of, thinking of uh, dreaming of New York City at the time. Um, and so uh, that's what we know about him as a fraternity brother. And um, I, I also wanna point out too, that the point I wanted to make and hammer home about the recruitment of, of brothers is that uh, it is it is believed by me and others and even brothers in the Upsilon chapter that that the way Bayer lived his life um, it is very like very charismatic very open very direct about um, about his ideals and his pursuits. Uh, I would find it very difficult and challenging to challenge it and know that the Omegas did not know of his sexual orientation. And at the time, I don't think that mattered. Uh, the, the fraternity, uh, our founders were looking at the time for men of, of of similar ideals. And and what makes that really controversial is one of those ideals is manhood. And I, and I said, well, that's really interesting because today um, there is this toxic idea of masculinity that... Uh, in large ways, and we talked about this, Charles. In many ways, cues uh, uh, become a symbol of some of that, uh, some of that stereotypical toxic masculinity. And but what was really interesting was how the founders of our fraternity defined manhood, and 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 it was a very broad view. It was someone who 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 never took lightly their core set of responsibilities. And I thought that was a really eloquent way of, of, of really casting the net really uh, wide and embracingly. Uh, the, other, the other thing is that, that, that the founders looked for uh, was courage, which was really interesting. And I thought that was an amazing thing. <laughs> if you want to find someone uh, who exhibits courage, Obviously, Bayard is on your on your short list. So uh, he had all the all of those ideals that would make him an incredible Omega man.
0: Yeah, one of the things I appreciate with this conversation, and I, I realize that I this point may come off a bit provocative, but for me, I feel like so much of what I've learned about Bayard Rustin was through a white lens. like so it would be white writers and white authors and white documentarians that I'm learning about Bayard through. And so I'm really interested, and so people have a perception of Bayard, and I'm, the perception, how do I put this? It's not without, I'm sympathetic to critiques of Bayard in some respects with regard to his relationship to the Black community. Um, Though I still think we should offer some grace um, in how we use a contemporary lens to judge him against. Uh, so for example, just to be like completely candid, like I know one perception of Barrett is that, you know, he was essentially like a black man that only did white man. And so, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm like, okay, so how do we contextualize Bayard Rustin in like the black community? Like how do we as black people, like what, what how do we look at him? What do, and so I really appreciate this conversation because it's absolutely putting Bayard Rustin in the context of a black institution. Um, I do want to ask, uh, I was, Pleasantly surprised. I didn't, my research wasn't as extensive as your research, but you know, the fact that he's even listed on the website of Omega Sci-Fi as a member, um, I thought was really interesting. And I would, and not for this conversation, but I would like to learn at some point the journey, like what it meant to have him listed on the website, because they, I mean, they could have not listed him, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. certainly there are prominent members that aren't listed, but they chose to list them. And so I guess what I'm curious about is to get your take on. You know, do you have thoughts about ways that Bayard's Bayard Rustin's legacy within the fraternity, or even as a member. How do we institutionalize that? Because I know a lot of people don't know that he was a member of Omega Psi Phi. Yeah,
1: um, yeah,
0: for good or for bad. And I was just wondering if you had thoughts about how we could, um, how he could be better, how we could, how we could sort of amplify that more, and how we can sort of uh, institutionalize his legacy within that within the fraternity.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm a I'm a back up and then make my way to. <clears throat> to how do we build uh, a a fairer, uh, more culturally specific framework for understanding Bayard Rustin? I want to work to that, and, and, and what where our start is 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 back, is to back up to talk about what likely drew him to Omega sci Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, I think what's important to, to for to put him in context culturally to start this conversation is to think about how Omega Sci-Fi began as a fraternity. And and as I start to talk about this journey of how we began as a fraternity, uh, I think it's gonna be really important to, to 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 catch some key descriptors where we can start really seeing Bayard really in, in a clearer way. And so everybody knows that, or a lot of people knows that um, that, um, you know, November 17th, 1911, Omega Sci Fi was founded at Howard University. Like, that's how it starts. But what's really interesting is it really wasn't that, that simple or, or cut and dry. That uh, during that time, Howard University um, had a, a, a white president, you know, Wilbur Thurkill. And during that time in 1911, there was no, absolutely no, uh, black Greek letter fraternity at a at an institution of higher education um, that was dedicated to black folks to our cultural experiences and pursuits it just wasn't and this was actually brought up in a meeting and I know there were some alphas on the call um, at a meeting uh, with alphas doing the Alpha Phi Alpha society uh, where well, I <laughs> <no
0: trouble. laughs>
1: But I do want to highlight, um, one, I guess, C. C. Poindester, who talked about, who questioned actually the cultural, the cultural framework of the Negro, to be able to embrace this, uh, these principles that are based in sort of Grecian society, uh, and 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 I think Omega sci Phi solves a lot of that because they said, why don't we take some of the ideals of Phi Beta Kappa and the ideals of you know whatever, right? And, and do it at a black, on a black camp, on a, on a black campus. Uh, you know, Edgar Love, Cooper, uh, Dr. Cooper, Frank Coleman, uh, Ernest E. Just got together They said, hey, you know, how do we build these bylaws? How do we become an organization? How do we become a chapter? They take it to Wilbur Thurkhill and he says, hey, we'll take it to the faculty senate or the committee and we'll let you know, and two, months and months and months passed, and this is what where Bayard starts to show himself um, some similarities in the fraternity. <laughs> Before they get the ruling, uh, the members of Omega, the founders of Omega said, forget this, we're about to take matters in our own hand and start posting all over Howard University campus that Omega Psi Phi is here, like we're here and we're gonna start recruiting folks right now, we're not gonna wait on anybody, right? They come back. They defied again. They said, we don't want to be a local organization. We want to be national. The first chapter, we're going to set it up, beta chapter. Then they go gamma chapter over at Michigan. Then, you know, in, in 19, I think 1928 um, at Wilberforce with Upsilon chapter. And so they sort of defied and they this activism spirit that I think was really, really important. In 1923 is when Upsilon was founded. I think it's really important to note that activism because Bayer Rustin, is probably well aware of what was happening in the 20s, in the late 20s. And so, Omega men were doing things like, uh, uh, you know, writing the miseducation of the Negro.
0: Carter G. Woodson was an Omega.
1: Absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, And, you know, so think about it. And that was happening in 1933, when it was happening. In 1928, the Omegas actually had a creative idea that we need to work as an interfraternity council, and so we actually led the way that gave us NPHC, and we and we did it in an effort to take on some of the some of the discrimination, some inequities that we thought might be happening with regard to the New Deal and with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Bayer Rustin was watching; <laughs> he 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 knew what was happening. Around that same time, you have a Langston Hughes over at Lincoln; like he he goes to to New York. Um, Bayard goes to New York. Bayard was, was, was raised in a house where W.E.B. Du Bois would come by frequently. And so he was connected to things that Omega sci Phi's foundings were, were getting ready to execute, these ideas that we were getting ready to execute. And I think that attracted him to Omega sci Phi in an incredible way. And he wanted to be a part of, of that kind of movement um, and it also provides him with access to a lot of luminaries that we know throughout the civil rights movement as well. And so I also think, knowing what I know about Bayard, that Omega psi fi was probably also a, stri- a strategic platform for him as well. Um, I didn't think that, I, I don't think he does anything just because, you know, I, 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 I only love it, but I also only love it and it works. <laughs> it's,
0: not, it's not just because he loved purple or something.
1: Absolutely. Like this was actually a platform. And if you think about it in that way, in that context, with that background, it makes it makes for an easier conversation when an out black gay man meets the father, I mean, the son of a preacher in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama, Martin Luther King Jr. And say, hey, I want to help you. Let's talk. And Coretta Scott King brings him to the bear. They can at least have a jump off point where they, hey, I hear you are alpha. <laughs> over at ABC. You know, so it provides him with this level of entry and untray that I also think um, was mutually beneficial uh, as well. But I wanted to provide that context. And to the part of your question, uh, I did talk to the Upsilon chapter about where is Bayard at Wilberforce? So there's a transformative figure in our fraternity um, called Colonel Charles Young, who was really instrumental in our expansion. He's the Upsilon chapter brother. He's the reason we wear gold boots, just FYI. Um, he is pronounced throughout the fraternity. There is a, his house is there, it is curated. There's a, a museum there, there are artifacts there. Um, but there's none of Bayard Rushton. And, and I've actually started conversations right now about how we, we can correct that. And uh, and one of the things I think we, we should really consider deeply uh, is to is to go back to that to that place to the campus to work with their library and and, uh, and their MPHC to stand up uh, a Bayard Rustin uh, standing place of education whether it's a, a a museum maybe it's a place in the library where we can really uh, start to uh, warehouse all of the things the incredible works that that started from his affiliation. Uh, at Wilberforce, and then illuminated, and ultimately changed the world. Um, and you asked one other question that I want to get to is that a couple of conclaves ago, um, there was a historic history committee. I think of twenty fifteen, where we wanted to provide a ex- more extensive history. There was a history committee set up by our Supreme Council, and then I think it was in the Conclave of twenty sixteen, uh, there was a extensive. Recounting of Bayard Rustin's history, uh, by our given by our Supreme Council, by our Grand um, Keeper of Records and Seals, which is incredible, um, and I believe it's probably during that time that that we really embraced that history, uh, spotlighting him on the on the website with other luminaries, and uh, and I think we're at a day now where we it is rich, and it's time to start really recounting his impact. Mm.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you. I mean, I just, I mean, I'll be honest, I was quite surprised (laughs) that he was an Omega, Um, but what I appreciate about that history is that it, it really offers a much more complicated view of even black history. Um, You know, so often we're taught, oh, the black, you know, and and I I absolutely think that we should be unwavering in our, the challenge, of any kind of you know anti-LGBTQ sentiment within our communities, I think that that we should pull no punches. But at the same time, and uh, Dr. Billy got Chef got at this yesterday. This narrative that black you know black communities, black institutions are some, somehow more homophobic or the uh, it, it just more homophobic than anyone else is just it's, it's ultimately rooted in white supremacy and racism. So I really appreciate this very uh, you know complicated. And it's not to say again there aren't institutions that absolutely need a reckoning and that we shouldn't not hold them accountable, but I just really appreciate just the the complicated narratives and and just how people move. I mean, I would love, if if there are any scholars or people that write in the audience, I I hope that someone considers writing about this part of the history, right? Like what is the relationship um, to Beard Rustin? Because again, I I feel like so much, and I I don't, I'm appreciative of everyone that's taken time to study Beard Rustin and write about him and offer scholarship around his legacy but I do wonder if there is a lens that someone writing from a a more specific black context can offer his narrative that I think sometimes gets missing. I mean, we know he's a Quaker, we know that part, and I think that's really important. We know that that part of his legacy, we know about the civil disobedience stuff, but I'm like, what about how he related to black? Because I think, again, we sometimes get a picture of Bayard as this sort of um, almost, um mm-hmm. his, his it, we get this picture of him as being almost um that doesn't fully embrace in a body the power that i understand him to have to have yeah. and, and as you shared, i mean you know the civil rights movement it just wasn't about I, the way i understand the civil rights movement yes there was powerful symbolism that they were able to wield but i also think it was rooted in them just being excellent strategists and really understanding, and you see this a lot with B.R. Rustin, right, just really understanding power and how to wield power. And so it's not, you know, so it's, so it's not just like there were these, you know, sometimes, you know, how do I put this? I think sometimes the way that we're taught civil rights history, I don't think it often pays due to just how masterfully strategic all uh, of them were.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll speak to that too. Um, there is a, and, and this is a very controversial subject. And, you know, I don't, I'm a communicator. So I try to always speak very clearly about controversy um, in a way that doesn't disparage, but, but it's true. And what, where I start is a conversation, a quote that you've probably heard me say by Chinua Achebe, that, you know, who's a just incredible writer and Chinua Achebe wrote Things Fall Apart and talked about African culture in a way that was so beautiful and unnuanced and purposeful. And it, it struck at the heart of, of the opposition of white writers who would write about these mystics and this mystery. And I think he was, he was asked about that one day and, and his answer was until the lion gets their own pens, the story of a hunt will always glorify the hunter. And I will never I mean, that 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 quote is seared into my heart because as a communicator, I understand the power of the pen and 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 black civil rights leaders allowed, whether it was because, uh, because they had to because of out of out of, um, you know, the circumstances, allowed lenses of white America and the fear of being perceived one way or another to uh, to to impact the strategy, the way we talk about the, str- the strategic successes and even how we approach them. You know, think about, um, you know, Brother Gray, Fred Gray, fraternity brother, um, litigated, you know, the case to, uh, that, you know, gave way to the rise of the Montgomery Improvement Association with the bus boycott in Montgomery with Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks won the first. Woman to say I wouldn't go stand up. It was actually a sister of my dear friend and mentor Gloria Laster, um, and um, you know when uh, when that sister set up sat down and said, "Listen, I'm not getting up." She was too dark. You know she was. You know she had a child out of wedlock. You know we we allowed those stories to be swept under the rug uh, in order to try to preserve this narrative. Even Dr. King not perfect. You know um, Langston Hughes. You know we talked about. Um, you know his, his his interesting life, and but we want to clean him up,
0: <laughs> right? I love I love the Harlem Renaissance, and so I, I learned that there were some uh, folks in the Harlem Renaissance that didn't love dark skin people, and yeah. I was like, oh okay, well, <laughs>
1: you know, and and I, and I think that's a flaw, and 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 one of the things that we're talking about now is getting Bayard Rustin a pen, giving him a pen, so that we don't allow uh, very credible. But also very narrow lenses to to define who he who he was uh, relative to our culture, and we've allowed that to happen. With and I was on the call yesterday with Coretta Scott King. I mean, she's a, she's the wife of. Nah, she a powerful force. Like we need to start telling telling these narratives in um, you know from our lens, and I think you know we 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 literally need to intercept our leaders. And providing pen for their narratives, so that we know how uh, how beautifully nuanced they were, which is what made them impactful and effective. So, anyway, I'll I'll stop there because that's a subject, especially as a communicator, that's near and dear to me. We we absolutely need to start owning our own narratives.
0: Absolutely. Uh, why don't we start taking questions? If you have questions or reactions, feel free to. Uh, put them in the chat. I have seen some reactions. Um, Al Cunningham shares: In the middle of the Great Depression, the school probably thought it could get away with bad food. Four years later, it wasn't great. Yeah, thank you for that. I
1: want to talk about the Great Depression, though, if you will. Um, you know, the Great Depression and the in the in the late twenties and then in the thirties are a are a pivotal a pivotal time for. Um, for cultural for cultural excellence uh, in America and, and I share with you why uh, during that time there was it was a lot of people, a lot of rich folk a lot of white folks lost, lost a lot of money <laughs> I mean they were it hit it hit everybody hard right but think about what was happening with you know um, on college campuses everywhere right there was, uh, there was this budgeting influence from, you know, from the AKAs, from, you know, from the Alphas, from the Deltas, from the Qs, the Sigmas. Uh, I think we, had, and i give a shout out to the Sigmas. We had a joint conclave with them in our history. Um, you know, the, the noops, I mean, all of this was happening. And I'll, I'll speak specifically about Omega. Uh, we, we were building with the Carter G. Woodson's, with the Percy Julian's. An, a, an engine, if you will, to restore kind of what we're talking about right now for Bayard Rustin, right? To restore our narrative on the on the, on the momentum of the Harlem Renaissance. Pro- providing our own literature, writing our own books, providing our own poems, developing our own music, prov- developing our own language for how we talk about our things. And that in the 30s, it struck a lot of fear in a lot of white folks because there was a dropping of, of value in the bank accounts and that was caused by real economic crises. And there was a rising of cultural power that, that was happening um, on college campuses everywhere and in societies everywhere that central to that, but not solely to that, that black Greek organizations uh, and others w- were central to. Um, and I think that's really important because it is, th- it is that dynamic that gave way to narratives that led to Jim Crow laws, that led to, uh, we cannot allow for, uh, for, 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 for Blacks to, to, to gain seats of prominence and influence in, in ways that allow them to take from. Now that's a faulty narrative, but it was enough to propel a people to start literally setting in place laws uh, that were, and, and gerrymandering, that sought to to stymie an entire, entire folk. So but you
0: touched at the heart of CMP, right? We believe that, well, no. We know that narratives have policy consequences. Mm-hmm. Even something like, you look at riots have been started over narratives, false narratives, right? Um, Massacres have occurred massacres have occurred over fa- because someone started, someone lied and said such and such happened on this side of town, and then there's a massacre. You yeah. know, so I mean we recognize and our thing is, you know, how do we how do we hack these narratives? How do we reprogram them? How do we I mean I think it's critical for us to really use the narrative, the narrative realm as our as our base of operation. That's that's our battlefield.
1: Yeah, I, I will. I will double down on that. And one, one of the and let me I want to be very, very clear here. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Was an incredible benefactor. Of. Being surrounded by strategic genius. Um, you you I'm, I want to talk about I want to talk about two people. You know one is Bayard Rushton that we're talking about now and how he swoops in um, right at the infancy of the MIA of the Montgomery improvement, uh, improvement Association and connected them to through Dr. King through nonviolence principles and sort of built the, the foundation for how we proceed with this work um, even though he was attacked for like who is this guy who who does he think he is coming down here telling us how to do uh, i think in the book uh, pardon the Wars, they say by the hour his position diminished with mia but at the same time his influence increased uh and dr king was was a beneficiary of that kind of genius and there's another genius that doesn't get talked about almost to the extent of Bayard Rustin, and that is Wyatt T. Walker and the doctor, Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker uh, is one of those geniuses who, who literally was the architect of the civil rights movement. And, you know, it's those kind of geniuses who were around him who, who we just don't hear enough about. And I had a chance to spend hours with Wyatt T. Walker. I, I flew to Chester, Virginia. He was in his 80s right before he passed. And his wife was gracious enough to say, you know, just spend time with this young man. Put him on game. <laughs> so I'm sitting with the with the, the with the architect of the movement himself. And he talked about how Dr. King invited him to be his chief of staff. He was the only chief of staff to Dr. King. Uh, and they met at, at Boston University in, in the seminary. Uh, at a seminary conference and, and became friends. And when when Dr. King was chosen to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association, he made first phone call and said, YT Walker, I don't know what I'm doing. You got to help me. You got to help me come down to Birmingham uh, to Montgomery. So he comes down and help him. But one of the things that I thought was really compelling about uh, the way he talks about the narrative, which is why we, it's important to have this narrative, is at the end of our conversation, I remember saying to him, Listen, I applaud your leadership. I think you did a great job of, of helping the power movement that a movement that changed the world and uh, broke the broke the chains of segregation. Mm. And he looked at me and he's like confused. And he leaned forward and this is and and I'm sure Bayard has these had these same puzzled looks at people like me. <laughs> he said, "Young young son, do you think?" That leaders allowed themselves to be beaten, killed, surveilled, attacked, defamed, because they just wanted access to the same places as white folks. He said, "You actually think that that's the narrative that that's that's what you believe that 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 is the strategy?" I wrote. Mm-hmm. He was like, "He said that's what everybody thinks." He said, "The real move." Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I was gonna say I see we have a question. Um, I want to take this question. Um, get your final uh, response on this question. Wrap mm-hmm. us up and then transition to the next um, the next. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the question is, uh, thank you for this. Why hasn't Omega Sapphire uplifted Rustin in their history more like records due to their other famous members. I've spoken to several members of Omega in the last 24 hours who didn't know he was their brother. If, if, if I'm allowed, um, I would like to just do a slight tweak of the question and ask, how can Omega Psi Phi, and I will also offer it to other uh, Black Week Letter fraternities. Um, why hasn't Omega Psi Phi, uh, not why, but how can they uplift Rustin Moore in their history? Um, like, what are the way, what are some of the things that they can do? Not asking to speak, you know, as a, in, a, in official capacity, but just as a member of the fraternity, do you have ideas about how um, they could talk about, how they could better, uplift Rustin moving forward from this day forward. And I'll also encourage, um, and if folks have ideas in the chat about how other uh, Black and fraternities can uplift their prominent uh, Black LGBTQ plus members, I welcome you to offer that in the chat as well.
1: Yeah, and so uh, let me let me, add to, let me add to that question. But the last sentence I want to say that Y.T. Walker said is that his strategy was all about economic empowerment. Uh, and that alone was frightening. And I'm sure Bayard Rustin was something after something greater. Uh, and that's a great segue to that, to the heart of that question. I think that we, uh, there are a couple of things that can be done, two things that can be done in order to lift up Bayard Rustin with regard to the fraternity. And the first thing I think needs to happen is, is, is personally, I, I will get involved with that. We have a, hist, a national history committee. I know members who are on the committee. Uh, they are charged with, uh, with, finding these accounts and bringing them uh, to our Supreme Council. Uh, the, the, art of the, the history of Omega is nuanced and it's complicated and it's also um, ghostly because, you know, we keep them closely guarded. When a, when a, when a brother li- left in, in the olden days to go somewhere, he guarded the secrets of Omega in a briefcase in his, in his bag. I mean, that's literally how we passed information along and, and, a, and a lot today. And, uh, and so we owe, I owe it to the fraternity to connect them to, um, uh, to Bayard Rushton in more compelling ways. And the second thing that, that will happen is I'm already in talks with brothers at the Upsilon chapter over at Wilberforce to figure out what ways, what things can we do with the institution publicly to uh, raise awareness and money to create something that is irreversible, and sustainable with regard to education about Bayard Rustin's impact, and so that work has already begun.
0: Well, I, you know, if there's any way CMP can be supportive of those efforts, or if you please, please let us know, we would be thrilled to, to support your advocacy within your fraternity. And, um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. And uh, if the if our if our audience just give our give our brothers some some love. Thank you so much. This was amazing. I know I have learned so 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 much. Um, and I hope that we can, we can have more conversations, more conversations. You know, Do you have wait. any final, final thoughts you want to share before, before we say bye to you?
1: Well, yeah, the last thought I want to say is to thank you. Uh, thank you for, um, putting me on to the Herndon's. Uh, we had a, long, a conversation, um, in the past and I just want to let you know that wh- whenever somebody gives me a book to read, I read the whole book. And so I'm fascinated by, um, uh, by that family. And, and-
0: Norris Herndon, Herndon was an alpha. So a little uh, alpha uh, omega- <laughs> Fascinated. I so, think it was alpha.
1: About uh, get that wrong? <laughs> thank you so much for being a vehicle for the, the 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 understanding of history. I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I love history as many people can tell, and uh, and I love the work that CMP does. I'm honored, and and whatever you need me to do anything, uh, you let me know. And, and as this movement starts, I'll, I'll definitely connect CMP.
0: Let's be in conversation. Thank you, Brandon.